Well, gang, we've been talking, except for Mother's Day, the past three weeks before that about fear in our series, Facing Fear. And we saw that fear is universal. Sometimes it can be very intense. We've also seen that God doesn't want us to live in fear and that the most repeated command in Scripture is, Fear not, I am with you. In 1 John 4, verse 18, he says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with torment or punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So God wants us to live so completely in his love, we don't, we don't have fear. We're not, we don't live in fear. It doesn't possess me. It comes to me, but I push it away. There's another thread in Scripture about fear, and it's called the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1-7, the book of wisdom, says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Later on, it says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. I think it's about 150 times in the Bible there are references to the fear of the Lord, that it's a good thing to live in the fear of the Lord. So how do we put these things together? You know, sometimes these teachings are so closely associated, it gets confusing. Let me show you one of those places right now. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, he's at Mount Sinai. God is present in a remarkable way. Darkness, clouds, thunder, and rumbling. Boy, can you imagine? The people are terrified. They don't want to get near God. They're afraid of God. And they tell Moses, hey, Moses, you go get close to him and come tell us what he said. We don't want to get close. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now, why does Moses say this? Why does he say on one hand, don't be afraid, and in the next breath, God has done this so the fear of the Lord will be with you? Well, let me give you a pop quiz and give you a couple of options, and you can vote yes on one of them. Option one, Moses has bad short-term memory problems. Option two, Moses likes to keep people guessing. Option three, I know the right answer, Rick, but I'm afraid to say it. Option number four, there are two sides to this business of fearing God, and that's what we're going to look at in this program. Should we be afraid of God? Well, we're to live in a sense of reverent awe and wonder that the Bible talks about as the fear of the Lord. It's not this kind of a, a fear. It's an awe, a respect. Uh, but not to be afraid of God in a way that keeps him distance. Yeah. So in this message, I want to walk through what it is that is fearsome about the truth about God and then how it works that perfect love casts out fear. you got to know a few things. Now, I want to explain the gospel, the good news, in this message. And I don't know how to make it any simpler than what I'm about to do. How is it you overcome your fear of eternity? How is it you become a Christian, a believer? Well, let's take a look at the first thought. First, it's a revelation that God is all-powerful. In Psalms 29.4, it says, The voice of the Lord is very powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. Now, lightning's a powerful force. In one bolt of lightning, there will be a billion, with a B, volts of electricity. The average temperature in the average bolt of lightning is 50,000 degrees. 
and that's five times hotter than the average temperature on the surface of the sun. Woo, that is hot. And the writer of Psalms talks about how the voice of God is like a bolt of lightning. Now, we're kind of fascinated by this power, but we also have a healthy fear for it. So the writer in Psalms says the voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. And the reason he says that is that lightning was about the most powerful image in his day he could think of. When lightning strikes, you better believe something happens. But lightning is just one of the little infinite expressions of this infinite power of God. When the voice of God speaks, something happens. That's why confessing his word is so powerful to put it in your mouth and declare it because it's what God said and it has life in it. It's power. It can create. It can bind. It can loose. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 12, Isaiah writes, God has measured the universe with the breadth of his hand. Now, I guess a lot of people try to imagine God keeping track of an enormous universe with multiple galaxies. And Isaiah said, no, no, no. God measures the whole universe by the breadth of his hand. The whole universe fits right there. Everything that is will fit in God's hand. He's trying to give you a mental picture of his capacity. It's unlimited. God's power is infinite. God is unlimited. So keeping track of the universe and running it, shoot, no challenge to him at all. And, you know, we can't keep up with two kids in the house. God keeps up with the whole universe. Now, when human beings come up against that kind of power, it can be kind of scary. One day, Jesus and the disciples were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and a huge storm came up. The disciples were yelling and screaming like little girls. These are tough, you know, uh, deadliest catch kind of fishermen, and, and they think they're going to die. It had to be bad. They panicked. And they went to Jesus, who's asleep in the back of the boat. And they said, hey, why aren't you doing something? Why don't you wake up at least? So Jesus woke up, and he stood up in the boat, looked out into the wind, the storm, and the waves, held up his hand and said, peace, be still. Better translation, shut up. Verse 39, the waves calmed down, the wind ceased immediately, and the storm was gone. Now, think about that moment and what it must have been like for the disciples who had never seen this done by anyone before. And Jesus, we're told in the Gospel of Mark, turned to the disciples and said, why were you so afraid? Verse 40, you of little faith. Well, their fear didn't actually go away. It got redirected. I mean, when I just saw that, I ain't worried about the storm. I'm, who is this man? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the wind and waves obey him? You get in the picture? See, when people encounter the living God, they're not so cute. They're not so trite. They're, they're not so uh, uh, off the cuff, uh, the man upstairs or some stupid comment like that. You come before all power in the universe. That's a scary thing. What's scary is not just that it's all physical power, it's spiritual power. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, verse 28. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. See, we're often in fear of a boss, 
or an intimidating person or a parent. But Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And folks, that one is God because you are an eternal being. Yeah, know it or not, believe it or not, your existence won't stop with death. You are an eternal being. So Jesus is making an irrefutable point. Don't be afraid of somebody who can just stop your physical life, whether it's a terrorist or coronavirus. Be afraid of the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. And only God Almighty holds that power. So that leads to a great question. What kind of person is God? How will he decide who continues to live forever with him? Well, at home I have a halogen light, very powerful, and it reflects a statement by John over in the Bible. Here's what John says. This is the message we have heard from God. We declare to you God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, verse 5. God is light. That's a statement. It's a statement of God's character. The light I have in my home is a halogen light. It's very bright. Normally your house lights are about oh, 150 watts. That halogen light is 5,000 watts. Oh, I know you're wondering, what are you doing with that, Rick? Well, we use it to, to hunt armadillos when they start terrorizing my wife's flower garden. And they can tear them up. And they, and they don't come up except maybe 4 o'clock in the morning or 5, these, these armadillos. So Cindy will go out with me when my little critter cam rings my phone and sends me a picture. He's there. And we jump up, and I grab the rifle. She grabs the halogen light. And out into the darkness we go to send this little fella into animal heaven, wherever that may be. And uh, then we go back to bed. Scripture says that Jesus is the Don't send me any emails on that, okay? <laughs> Jesus is the light of the world. But then it says... But human beings prefer darkness because their deeds were evil. That's John chapter 3, verse 19. We want to keep our sins hidden, so we love darkness. And when people do some nasty things, it's usually in dark places. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, the Bible says that God is light. In him is no darkness. God has never told a lie. God has never bent the truth. God has never been unjust. God is light. That's good news. God is perfectly just. And there's another piece of information related to this, which is that one day God's going to examine every human life, mine, yours. God's going to bring justice to this world. It's going to come your way and my way. You, you may have been a war criminal in some country in some war, and you may have escaped or eluded justice. But my friend, don't worry, you will never escape that. They will stand before God Almighty and be judged. Now, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of people's hearts. So one day, the Bible says, judgment is coming. Not just death, judgment. God is going to judge, and he's going to judge by the light of his holiness. This is very important because a lot of people in the world get confused about what standard God will judge people by. Now, most people who are not Christians, who don't understand Christianity, which is probably half the church, they think God will judge on the curve. Remember that in school? They think that 
A failing grade will just be a little bit below whatever level I happen to live on. They think, there are some real bad people, Rick, and judgment ought to come their way. But the failing grade's going to be just a little lower than me. So a lot of people are hoping that when judgment day comes, they're, they're just behind somebody really bad. So that by contrast, they look okay. They hope they'll be in line behind Adolf Hitler or Saddam Hussein or Mussolini or Osama bin Laden or maybe Dennis Rodman. I'm just kidding. But what if you're behind Billy Graham or Mother Teresa? And what if you heard God say, gee, I'm sorry, Billy. I'm sorry, Mother Teresa. You didn't do quite good enough. Next. Whoa. So it's real important you understand this question, how God decides who will live with him forever. The Bible says God's all-powerful. He holds all spiritual power. He's also completely holy. He is perfect and just. And one day, he's going to examine and judge every human being. So the question is, how am I going to do? Is it pass or fail or a grade on the curve? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of God's holy standard. Now, I love this verse in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22. God says, although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, says the Lord God. Every one of us, folks, carries a stain. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We haven't all come as short as some, but if you come short, you miss perfection. One sin makes me a sinner. So God's saying everybody is sin, whether you've been a, a criminal, uh, a murderer, or whether you lied. Everybody has sinned and come short. So everyone on this planet carries the stain of sin. You know, maybe you rationalize it, or you think, well, there's somebody else that's more stained than I am. But in the perfect light of God's holiness, it's unmistakable. You know, maybe you've been kind of playing games and thinking, well, there are other people more stained than I am. I might shade the truth a little, maybe fudge on my taxes. Small stuff like that, you say. But there's a whole lot of people, Rick, doing a lot worse than I'm doing. But the Bible's clear. God is going to judge the human race. And the standard by which God will judge all of us is perfection. Perfect holiness. And what does that mean, Rick? It means none of us make it. That's what it means. Romans 3.12, there is none that doeth good. No, not one. And notice what Jeremiah says. Although you wash yourself with lye and a lot of soap, although you do all that, you can't get the stain out. Or, you know, OxyClean isn't going to help you. Or no matter how much you cleanse yourself with sanitizer, you can't get rid of that virus of sin. And some of you have been doing that. Oh, here's your soap. Maybe if I go to church enough, maybe if I give enough money, maybe if I don't commit adultery and don't kill anybody, maybe if I do enough volunteer work, maybe if I give to uh, a charity, maybe if I do enough good deeds, maybe if I eliminate some bad habits, maybe I can just do enough. Now, the truth about all of us is, we're stained, and you can't get that stain out by anything yourself. And some of you watching and listening right now are really troubled by that stain. 
you've been spending your whole life thinking, if I could just do enough, but you cannot. The good news about God is, although, you know, we have all come short of his righteousness, of his standard of perfection, the Bible says, God is not willing any should perish. That's 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. doesn't want anybody to be lost. So we come right to the heart of the gospel, you know, right to the heart of what it means to become a Christian. And that's expressed by a cross. The cross is an instrument of death because the Bible says, Romans 6, 23, the wages or payment of sin is death. Something's going to die. Sin brings death. I die a little anytime I sin. My conscience dies a little bit. I can die relational deaths if I'm sinning in something. Physical death came into the world through sin. That was never part of God's plan. See, man wasn't created with any sin. Man wasn't put in an environment that had sin. No, old dumb Adam, he chose to take us all into sin. And people blame God. And I thought, God didn't do that. Cancer didn't come from God. A terrorist did Satan, that was, a, that was a, a choice by an archangel. Every death that gets experienced that cuts you and me is a result of sin. And ultimately, there's a spiritual death, which is the ultimate kind of death. Human beings are separated from God through all of eternity because they reject God. They reject His Son, Jesus Christ. So, God says, hey, I'll make a way for people to be forgiven and for that stain of sin to be removed. I'll give you some white out, right? Jesus came, and this is right at the heart of the Christian faith. He lived as a human being in the flesh, breathed our air, walked on our ground, taught us and showed us life. Then he went and hung on that cross, and when he was doing that, he was dying the death that rightfully I should have experienced and you should have experienced. He was taking on that cross my judgment. He was being killed because the wage of sin is death. Because though he had no sin, he became sin for me and he was judged. I love this. When I die, God isn't going to judge me. I've already been judged on the cross in Jesus. There will never be a judgment for a believer. Never tell your children when something bad happens, God's judging you. That's horrible. He is not. That may be a chastisement or it might be the consequences of a bad choice. If I put my hand on a hot stove and it burns, that's called dumb. The devil didn't do it. I did it. So Jesus took my place and your place on that cross. We used to sing that song, what can wash away my sin, my stain? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Tide can't do that. You know, Jesus, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 9, verse 22. See, we deserve to die because of our sin. But Jesus died in my place. This is why it was called good news. How do you mess this up? Every once in a while, we read or hear about somebody making the ultimate sacrifice for someone else. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. In Afghanistan, a Marine rolled out into open fire so he could get the satellite phone to radio for help. His company had been ambushed with several casualties. He got help on the radio but was killed by enemy fire because he exposed himself to death for his Marine buddies. But imagine somebody sacrificing their life for another person 
who's their enemy. And the Bible says that in Jesus, God came to this earth, went to the cross, suffered, was beaten and died for you and me while we were still sinful and enemies to God. Wow, Jesus did that. He took your place and mine on a cross. Here's what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He personally carried away our sins in his own body on the cross so we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. You have been healed by his wounds. So Jesus took your place and mine on the cross. He died so you don't have to die. He was judged so you don't have to be judged. So your stain could be removed. Your forgiveness could come. Not because you earned it or bought it or worked for it. You can't. Not because of good works you planned or did, but as a free gift of God's grace and God's mercy. Imagine with me a picture of a bill you owe. I'd like my home mortgage for one. And printed across it in big red letters was stamped, paid in full. And one of the images the Bible uses for forgiveness that comes by grace through Jesus is the image of a debt, a moral debt. People often get trapped in financial debt, and they can hardly get out. I know a guy that kept getting credit cards. He'd get one, max it out, get another one, max it out. Then he'd get another one to make the payments on the other two. Someone took him to a financial seminar, and the guy got so psyched up, he went to the product table and ordered $650 worth of CDs. And guess how he paid? Yep, put it on his credit card. Not good. Jesus said it's like we owe an incalculable moral debt to God. You can't pay it. You don't have the moral resources, perfection, and neither do I. God's standard is perfection. So when Jesus died on the cross, he paid your moral debt to the Father. He paid the debt of your sin and mine. How, however terrible it might be, Jesus paid for it on the cross, paid it in full. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. Pete says, For you know it was not with perishable things like silver or gold. You can't buy somebody out of purgatory or buy or redeem somebody by giving a lot of money to the church. The mafia thought you could, but you can't. You know, you weren't redeemed with that. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish or defect. So the writer of Hebrews reminds believers who had come out of the Old Testament and had to offer a lamb for their sin continually that Jesus, the final lamb of God that those little four-legged lambs pictured, was different. He died a sacrifice for the sins of everyone once for all. Never be another death for sin. Never be another atonement for sin. He did it once for all. There'll be never be another sacrifice. That means every sin of yours or mine no matter what it was, past or present, has been paid in full. When Jesus Christ came as the Savior of man, that moral debt was paid in full. He didn't make a partial payment. He didn't make a minimum payment. He paid it in full. And on the cross, he shouted, it is finished. By the way, that's just by the way, but I remember, I remember in taking some of the languages of Greek and Hebrew, when he shouted, first of all, he wasn't emaciated on the cross. In fact, he, although he'd been hanging on that cross when it was time to end it, he dismissed his spirit. 
He didn't ebb away. He shouted, it is finished. In the Greek, it's tetelaste, and it means paid in full. When he shouted that, he had fulfilled the law. He had been perfect and righteous. He had been judged for all humanity, and now every debt was canceled the moment you accept Jesus. And that's called good news, the gospel, that God is all-powerful, perfectly holy, and that you and I are fallen human beings that God loves very much. He loves you enough to come to this earth, die on a cross in your place and mine, and pay my debt of sin. And you can know all that, but if you don't take the next step, it really doesn't matter. You know, when you were married, you got a marriage license, and on it is a statement of relational commitment. It, it's, it's when you say yes to another person. You know, in different times in your life, there are different levels of commitment. Sometimes they're very easy and light. You remember going steady? <laughs> that wasn't a major commitment. You could always keep your options open. Maybe I could do a little better. I'll just keep my options open. Won't you wear my ring around your neck? <laughs> That's not a major commitment. When you get a, ma a marriage license, there is no maybe category on it. If you sign one of these, what you say is, with all that I am, with all that I have, for richer or poor, better or worse, sickness and health, I will love and cherish you. Now, I think everybody watching right now understands the gospel, that God is all-powerful, he's perfect and holy, that we are all flawed and sinful people, that we cannot pay that sin debt or erase that stain. So Jesus died on the cross on my behalf and your behalf so that forgiveness and grace are the free gift of God, not of works, lest any man boast. Not something you have to earn, not something you can pay for. No, it covers your sin yesterday, today, and forever. And I think for some of you, even right now, it's this commitment stuff that God's asking you to make, to say to God, all right, God, all that I have and all that I am, I give to you. And I want to give you a chance to do that. I've committed my life to the truth that this is the most important decision a human being can make. Not where to go to college, not even who to marry, whether to take out a loan and buy a house. Those are important decisions. They're not the most important. I am committed to the truth that all of us are fallen, all of us are sinners, and that Jesus Christ, not governments, not political parties, not religious people, but Jesus only, died for us. And I want to belong to him. And at 27 years of age, I heard that message, and that's been 45 years ago. I did exactly that, and I've never been the same. Oh, I'm a little grouchy sometimes. Have a good, if I get out on the highway and the traffic's terrible out here on San Pedro, the Darth Vader tries to show up, but it has no power over me. And no matter what happens in my life, nothing can ever change this fact. Nothing can ever touch this fact. And my greatest wish for everybody watching is that you know you are a child of God and that what Jesus did on the cross was for you. So that when the end of your life comes, and brother, it will, it goes by so fast, you'll face an eternity with no fear because you will be right there in the hand of God. And nobody, nothing can take you away. For more information on Summit Christian Center, 
visit SummitSA.com.